hopefully nobody's going to start mowing the lawn in next door's garden like they did last week. You might hear seagulls in the background here. That's just, oh, that's you nice. know, goes with the territory. It's not nice. It really isn't. They're like velociraptors. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, they're like feral seagulls of Brighton. In Rill, they had, I can't remember if they still do it now, but a few years ago, they started having people walking up and down through the town with birds of prey on their shoulders. They were doing that in London. They had it at Trafalgar Square, this guy with a, a falcon or a hawk. I went to Trafalgar Square one time and there were no pigeons anywhere. I was like, this is strange. <laughs> and there was this guy with a, with a hawk and yeah, it's his job to just hang around with his hawk. I remember one of the few, the very few photos that I've got of my dad is of him in Trafalgar Square completely covered in pigeons. Not because <laughs> not not he was a tramp or anything. He didn't live there. <laughs> That that's funny. I have, I actually have an old black and white picture of my grandfather and father. So my father is a child with his father in Trafalgar Square. Yeah, covered in pigeons. And they used to sell pigeon food. Yeah, yeah. They're, which they're which wasn't them. chips. Yeah, wasn't Ch- chip, chip. chips are seagull food. <laughs> oh yeah, so they are actually. Yeah, pigeon pigeons could make a dent in a, yeah. in a bag of chips. Though. See, I, I watched a, a flock of seagulls drive a woman off the beach the other day in Brighton. The weather's so nice. It was down down the seafront. And this woman was literally chased off the beach by seagulls because she had some chips. <laughs> they were going for her chips and that was just like, ah! My brother once had to get, um, he had a pigeon problem on his roof. And um, there was this guy you could call, it was all very dodgy. And he would turn up and this is what happened. He turned up in the street in a, in a car and uh, he got in the back seat and he got an air rifle. And um, and he shot one of the uh, pigeons from inside the car because obviously you can't really get outside in the street in Britain with a rifle. Um, and he shot one of the pigeons, and apparently they don't come back. And it stopped all the pigeons uh, coming back because there was a dead one there. Pretty extreme kind of, solution. Yeah, it, w- it was a bit, but I think it was this, the last straw. Anyway, this guy was like, don't know who he was, but he was super dodgy. <laughs> yeah, bad guy with an air rifle inside his car just in case, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think before we get going that we need to let people know that there's absolutely zero business content in the podcast this week. Well, you say that, but who knows? Who knows what what gems of business wisdom might come from a discussion of apes in films? Thousands of people are just thinking, when is there ever any business content in this program anyway? <laughs> That's true. There's, this is a cinema special. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk primarily about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, but I know that we're just going to cover all kinds of shit at the same time. Sounds good. If you haven't seen Dawn of the Planet of the Apes yet, you better tune out unless you want your surprises spoiled. Because it was it was the apes singing show tunes that surprised me. I, I didn't think that was going to happen so soon. So we are we are allowed to talk spoilers, are we? Yeah, spoilers are definitely included. And if anybody carries on listening past this point, it's your own stupid fault. If you find out about about the uh, the singing apes before you go see it, so who else but to have some film fun on this gloriously sunny Wednesday afternoon than Brendan Dawes and Jeremy Keith? Hello. See, if Hello. we had a soundboard, there'd be applause, but we don't. <laughs> I take it that you've seen Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. 
Yes, when when you pinged me on Sunday to say we could have a chat about it, I said, okay, I'll go to the cinema that evening. So that evening I went to my local cinema and watched it. Yeah, I went on uh, Monday, Monday night, along with about 15 other people. So, yeah, it wasn't busy. I ducked out of Alex's graduation halfway through, and uh, um, no, I didn't really. I went the day after. I went on Friday and saw it there. And so, yeah, it wasn't actually that busy at half past five in um, mm. Ellesmere Port. The showing I was in was full, but the cinema theatre was really, really small. There's like six or seven rows, so it doesn't take much to fill it up. Well, they're not showing it at our local Scarlet in Prostatin for about another two weeks because apparently they can't afford to get it in like now, which is a real shame because I like to support the local cinema rather than the big, you know, chains. Yeah, when when I decided, okay, I have to go and watch it now, I thought, oh, if I have to go to the Odeon, you know, I'll, I'd, I'd rather bit torrent it or something. But luckily, local cinema, the Duke's, uh, uh, Duke of York's, the Duke of Comedia was showing it, and that's a great cinema, so... I was very happy to hand over my money and uh, go see it there. It's I like to go to the Scala, and I don't even mind buying Maltesers or popcorn or something in there, because you just know it's going to a good cause. Yeah, the thing is, though, I show up, and I get in line to get um, I get a, I get beer there. You can buy your beer, bring it to the cinema with you, and uh, popcorn. And the person in front of me was the last person to get the last salty popcorn. There was no more salty popcorn after that so i was stuck with sweet popcorn which personally i don't think is right yeah I, you know what my niece i love salty popcorn my niece who is six she loves salty popcorn which is like goes against you know you think mm. kids loves and uh last time when she was at the cinema with me the uh, attendant was quite amazed that <laughs> you really want salty popcorn yes so yeah i agree it's much better than sweet what a fascinating conversation this is for people listening. <laughs> well, uh, Andy, wh- where do you stand on this? Uh, I'm a sweet popcorn kind of guy, actually. Oh, yeah, I'm, and I like it buttery. Wait, su- <laughs> sweet and buttery. I do. I like it sweet and buttery. I like a little bit of the sweety salt saltiness coming through with my popcorn. Weirdo. Yeah, I know. So, I guess the question that we need to start with is: two D or three D? So one of the reasons why I went on the Sunday night, even though it was showing, it had quite a few showings on the Monday evening, was that the Sunday night one was 2D, and I deliberately wanted to see it in 2D. Yeah, I'm the. I think hate 3D. It's a it's a marketing gimmick. So I, you know, 2D all the way. Well, I saw it in 2D on Friday in Ellesmere Port, and then I went last night, because I needed to squeeze in a bit more research for this podcast, obviously, because we take it seriously. We don't just turn up on a Wednesday afternoon and, you know, talk shit. No, not at all. Very serious. There's a lot of research that goes into this. I mean, you know, not a kind of Alex Academia kind of research, but certainly a kind of I can sit and eat a bag of Maltesers watching this film again kind of research. And I went last night and I watched it in 3D, and I didn't like it at all. It was... In fact, it didn't just not add anything. I thought it actually hurt the film. It made it. It, it can be distracting, can't it? Yeah, and you know, I don't know whether it's just because I'm still carting around the one pair of 3D glasses that I got from I don't know Princess and the Pea or something. I don't know whatever 3D movie I got them from. But you know, they're quite old, and I refuse to spend four quid on top of the price of the film getting a pair of 3D glasses. 
So I was wearing those and it just made everything dark and flat. Yeah. Yeah. It does reduce, reduce the light a lot. And then the other thing was, I mean, I think it's just, maybe it's my brain cause I'm getting old, but when there's a lot of things happening on the screen, like in some of the battle scenes, the fast moving scenes, I couldn't take it all in. You know, I couldn't concentrate on what was going on because I was concentrating on the 3D. It was horrible. Yeah. yeah and it, it does kind of mess with your head, I've noticed, because um, you still have the thing where something is out of focus and something is in focus, right? That's the way that you know film works. And you you got things. But with the 3D, your brain is telling you, oh, if you were to focus on that thing in the foreground that's out of focus, it would come into focus because that's how the world works, three-dimensional world. If you can focus on something. But then if you try and do that, of course, it doesn't come into focus because it's out of focus in the film. And so I just start getting a headache from that all the time. Mm. And, and also it, I find that it just makes everything look like it's, um, like it's really small. Everything's done with models instead of being really large, which is what you want when you go to the cinema, because the depth of field in the 3D, even though yes, there's depth, it's only a depth of, you know, a matter of inches. Um, so when you're trying to take in a great big scene that should be, you know, sprawling background and foreground and action happening. It actually just looks like a bunch of, I don't know, toys, toy soldiers instead of, you know, full size. Yeah, that's. I think that's what uh, Walter Murch, the Oscar-winning sound editor and film editor, said. There's a if you if people if you put in the show notes uh, and the um, Walter Murch's article about 3D and why why it doesn't work. It's essentially what um, Jeremy's just said that. Um, you have to focus on the entire plane of the film. Um, and it's, you know, you, you, you can't really do that. So you lose all the, all the power of the, you know, the individual imagery and everything else. So it's a really great article and it's on Roger Ebert's, uh, site. Um, I've got it here now. Why 3D doesn't work and never will case closed. I've read this before for a couple of years ago. I will say the, the one big exception I'd throw in would be gravity. Gravity in yeah, yeah. 3D on an IMAX screen. But I mean, partly that's because the camera is constantly in mm. motion. Yeah. And, and in that environment, it just made sense. And it was so much part of the film. And maybe it's because there's an awful lot of kind of blackness in space anyway. It didn't, you didn't notice the fact that things were made mm. even darker, perhaps. I don't know. I've only ever watched Gravity on a 13-inch laptop, which I think is not quite the same. <laughs> you haven't I, really seen Gravity. And I, I miss it. I wish that they sort of, you know, maybe during the summer or something, instead of just showing all the other blockbusters, it would just be nice if you could go and see really good other films, you know, on a Tuesday afternoon. They do that at the local um, art gallery here. They've got a cinema and they'll, they'll do like classics and modern classics and every, every month or something. It's pretty good. Well, I obviously got the, collection of weirdly assorted trailers that they were throwing before planet of the apes last night and every single thing seemed to be a great big cgi spectacular and i can imagine because you're going to go and see planet of the apes that they're not going to show you trailers for some kind of art house movie you're not going to see something in french mm-hmm. it's not going to be like a you know a little quiet film noir um, masterpiece but bloody hell i mean transformers age of extinction um, what else did they show? Hercules. Um, Into the Storm was the other one, where I think it's about a storm, and basically it throws a lot of things up into the air, like storms do, including aeroplanes. And it's like, oh man, am I the only one that's getting really bored with these 
big budget kind of blow em ups. You know what? I have no problem with big budget blow em ups. I have a problem with crap films. Now, some of those ones you mentioned are, are, are problematic, not because they're big budget, uh, you know, blow em ups. They're problematic because they're crap. But I don't think you should confuse too. There's a lot of crap art, art house movies too. And there's a lot of crap, you know, quiet movies. The problem is, is, is the crapness, I think, not, not the blow em ups. You can make terrific, you know, explosion tacular films that are still thoroughly entertaining and thought provoking. And well, I would, I would say Dawn of the Planet of the Apes would fall into that category. You know, it's a big blockbuster film, one of the big ones of the summer, but that doesn't mean that it's stupid. It doesn't mean that it's dumb. And, there's been quite a few over the last few years, big blockbuster, you know, smashes that are also pretty smart. You know, Christopher Nolan is pretty much plowing the field with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's not about, oh, it's a big budget and it's full of explosions and, and things blowing up. I'm sick of that. And I'm, so I'm sick of is, is not caring. I'm, I'm sick of when they're executed in a bad way. And I find it, I find it kind of annoying when, <laughs> Like, there's been so many crap big blockbuster films featuring things I am theoretically into, like giant robots smashing each other, right? Or big spaceships fighting it out. That those sort of plots or those kind of films now get thrown into the, oh, it'll be silly because it's big spaceships and because it's big robots smashing each other, when actually it doesn't need to be, right? It depends on how it's executed. It depends on, on it being smart. There was a really great quote from Mark Kermode that I heard the other day. He was doing his Dawn of the Planet of the Apes review. He was talking about Michael Bay and saying how he must, he, Michael Bay must think that the best way to entertain people is just to make bigger and bigger explosions. Um, I think he's talking about Transformers, which there was a trailer for. Um, poor old Marky Mark apparently stars in Transformers Age of Extinction, which could well be his last film. It's a shame that, you know, Mark Wahlberg, I just watched uh, Lone Survivor, and, you know, he was good in that. I, I like, you know, I don't know why he's in those Transformer movies. I think they're terrible, but, um, yeah, I, I came out angry when I saw um, Man of Steel because um, when I saw the trailer, I thought, oh, this is going to be a really intelligent film about, I mean, Superman is probably my favourite superhero, and uh, I thought... You know, it's going to be a, and I do love the original, the Christopher Reeve one. And I, when I saw the trailer, I thought, God, this looks beautiful. It looks subtle. Um, it looks intelligent. And then the thing, the first half hour is, you know, it's pretty, pretty good. But, and then it just, the, the two hours is just people's heads being smashed into concrete for two hours. <laughs> and, and it's just, I just wanted it to end. I, I came out really mad because I mean, you know, I just it just annoyed me. So that yeah, I agree with Jeremy. It's like, you know, I, I like a good action flick blockbuster as much as anyone, but they should be good. <laughs> I think with the super the superhero films in particular, they feel like they always have to have like that it does feel like two hours. I'm sure it's not, I'm sure it's like the last half hour, forty five minutes, but like it's not a proper superhero film unless it ends with, you know, a city getting smashed up while, mm-hmm. you know, good and evil superheroes battle it out in in that city and it's just, yeah it's just so boring it's, yeah, it's like just, it it's it's just dull do you know what i'm looking forward to next the next planet of the apes film no expendables three it looks great oh God. <laughs> i i turned the second one off i couldn't, I couldn't. <laughs> you know what killed it for me the digital squibs that people you know the blood effects that they seem to have just on that second one they just use so much 
it was almost like this is too much now. It's like that the rip. There's not enough blood in normal squibs, so they put digital ones on, and it's so exaggerated. It's and it just it kind of offended me. <laughs> in my day, we had real squibs. We had real squibs that looked a bit more realistic, but I don't know. So I was like, yeah, watched about ten minutes, turned it off. No, I'm looking forward to it because Sylvester Stallone wears a Rocky hat, which just does it for me. Anyway, let's 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 talk seriously for a minute about okay. films. Can we talk about performance capture? Which obviously Dawn of the Planet of the Apes relies on quite a lot as there aren't actually any real apes in it. And I read people over the last couple of weeks, people say that there should be a new Oscar category for performance capture. What do you think about that? Well, th- this isn't new. Um, not, I mean, performance capture is, but the idea of, I guess, uh, a non, a non direct uh, acting performance, that's not new. When The Empire Strikes Back came out in 1980, Irvin Kirshner, the director, you know, felt very strongly that Frank Oz should be nominated for a, a best supporting actor for what he did with Yoda. Um, you know, a central performance of the film. It's not a direct acting performance by Frank Oz, but, you know, if it hadn't been Frank Oz, it just wouldn't have worked. It just, it just wouldn't have been the same. So this idea isn't new, but I don't think, um, a separate category, um, is the right way. I just feel like it, sh- it should be nominated the same as any other, uh, performance. I mean, we not, we nominate people who, you know, covered in makeup, you know, John Hurt gets nominated for the elephant man. It's not that different to, um, motion capture. And there are categories, Oscar categories for, Voice performances, aren't there? And in, in animated films, do they do they have Oscars for that? I'm sure they do. I'm not sure if they do. Maybe. If there was such a category, do you think Andy Serkis deserves an Oscar for Caesar, or you know, all the other stuff that he's done? <laughs> That's very hypothetical. <laughs> he'd, he'd probably have to go up against himself because uh, he's the only guy that does it. It seems like you go see any film with motion capture, and it's got to be Andy Serkis, you know. The, the nominations would be, uh, Planet of the Eight movies, King Kong, The Hobbit. It would be Andy Serkis all the way. So I watched Rise of the Planet of the Apes this week and I watched King Kong, which I know you don't like, Brendan. You don't like Peter Jackson's King Kong. No. I didn't, what ruined it for me was the, the, I think it's the line at the end and it totally ruined the whole film. That's the line from the original. That's the line straight out of the 1933. I don't, where he says, it says something about, was it Kong? It, w- it wasn't bullets that killed the beast. Beauty. And it wasn't bullets. It was be- beauty killed the beast. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's, um, I don't know. I just didn't, you know, I, I don't like the seventies one either. <laughs> yeah. No, that is bad. I mean, yeah, the seventies one is terrible. Bad. Yeah. It was terrible. No, I just didn't. I don't know. Just, I, I like the original. I think, um, you know, I just, I've got a lot of fond memories of it. Obviously, I wasn't around when it first came out, but <laughs> not that old. But, uh, yeah, I just, it was okay. You know, I see a lot of these films. I mean, this is, you know, how it felt for me watching, um, Dawn, uh, was, it was like, yeah, it's all right. You know, it's, I don't know, it, it takes a lot for me to, I come out, when I, when I saw Gravity, I went, God, that was brilliant. Um, you know, for, for various reasons, but uh, so it, I've sort of got a very high bar now. Do, do you think that you're bringing baggage because it's, um, I don't want to say remake, 
what do they say, reimagining. Yeah, you know, retake, a, a on something that you already, story, yeah, yeah, reboot, right. Yeah. Something you already have, you know, fond memories of. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's why I got upset with Superman, because, you know, there's, mm. you, you attach all these memories, don't you? Like, I went to see it with my dad, I think, in London, uh, the original Superman. So there's all those things come with it, I guess. Um, but I think Man of Steel was particularly bad. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess so. Um, and I think there's a sort of, there's a, there's also the fact that, you know, the original King Kong was, you know, real, really pioneering from an animation point of view. You look at it now and it's kind of, you know, funny. But, um, and, you know, I'm a big admirer of Ray Harryhausen's work and stuff. So all those things, I guess, um, make me want to like the original a lot more than the, the remake. But, uh, yeah, no, it was fine. But it just wasn't, it wouldn't even be in my top 100. I know that. I still get upset with it though. Maybe it's just me when he's on when he's on the top of the Empire State Building getting shot at, and I just think, oh, that's just so sad. I do. I get um, I get more upset than that than I do about Titanic. Well, that's you. You <laughs> have a soft spot for apes. That's why. well, yes, but it's, I mean, and I don't have a soft spot for Leonardo DiCaprio. But so if it was oh, if it was apes geez. on the Titanic, that that would get your heart Oh no, I'd, I'd be a wreck. I'd be a wreck for weeks on end after that. Draw but me like one of your French chimps. <laughs> There's a show title <laughs> right there. No, I just thought it was incredible because I watched King Kong this week and I, the difference in fidelity between King Kong, which was, uh, what now? 2009, I think. Um, he says without looking it up and Caesar now. What a difference. What a difference in kind of performance fidelity. Yeah, I mean, the be- for me, the best best thing about the motion capture in the new Planet of the Apes is that I just didn't think about it. Yeah, you know, absolutely. maybe you notice it for the first few minutes, thinking, "Wow, that's really impressive," but very quickly you just stop thinking about it. Yeah, I think you, you just you're just watching apes. You know, the thing is, and that's it. And like I say, you just you don't notice it anymore. It's quite quite incredible when you actually take a step back later on and go, well, "I mean, how did they do that?" You know. It's, Mind-boggling. Well, I want to talk about some some of the things that they might have got right, really right about apes in a minute. But can we just squeeze in a sponsor? Sorry, Jeremy. If you must. Our first sponsor this week, it's a conference and it's Shrop Geek Revolution. And that's happening in the beautiful town of Shrewsbury on Friday, the 26th of September. So you'll probably remember Laura and I talking about Shrop Geek Revolution last year. Laura was speaking there about accessibility and I went along to listen and it was a brilliant day. And the organisers say that it's one of the web's friendliest conferences. And uh, I found that to be true. I'm sure there are other conferences in different parts of the country that are equally as friendly, mentioning no names. This is their fifth event and they've got some fabulous speakers lined up. And then they've got Paul Boag. Our good friend, Rachel Andrews, she's going to kick off the day with her talk about practical steps that developers and designers can take to get from an idea to launch with a bootstrapped side project. Then Amy Thibibo from Facebook, she's going to be talking about designing with words, the role of content strategy in product development. That sounds interesting. Then there's Dan Goodwin from Function and Fabio Basile from Fabs.com. Andy Yates. Andy Davis, Sebastian Sivy from The Guardian on building content management tools for the modern web. And finally, by no means least, our friend and uh, my slimming partner, Paul Boag, 
with his new talk, Digital Adaption, Time to Untie Your Hands. That's a really strong lineup, and I'd be going there myself if it wasn't for me going to Oslo and speaking at a conference that same week. But you should go. When is it on? Uh, 26th of September, Friday. You go to my place. I know you'd enjoy it. Tickets are a measly £89, but the organisers are offering a 15% discount for listeners. Use the discount code UNFINISHED. So to get yours, visit unfinished.bz slash shropgeek and let them know we sent you. Right, back quick content then. So before we talk about Dawn, I thought it might be useful to round things out a little bit and talk about some of the other seven Planet of the Apes movies. can't believe there's been seven. Yeah, it depends how you're counting, though. Well, let's talk about the original five. Do we need to really talk about the Heston original? A classic. It, it, it does rank in my top five films of all time. It's not my favourite film of all time, but it does rank in the top five, I think. It's one of those films I can always watch. You know, if like you're, you're flipping channels and, oh, Planet of the Apes is on, I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep it on that channel and I'll watch it through to the end. I think it's fascinating just to take those original five as a whole because there are so many topics that it, they touch on across those five films. But at the same time, they're each very much of their kind of period. And it's quite interesting to think of them as a group because you see the budgets going down, you see the special effects getting worse. But somehow it still manages to hold on to that thing, I think. In fact, I remember um, I was reading something in uh, a book, Matt Reeves, who's just directed Dawn, said that when he was a kid, it was that one symbol of an ape on horseback with a rifle. That was it. He didn't need to see anything else. Mm -hmm. That was the one thing that, you know, summed up Planet of the Apes. I mean, I I have to say for me, with that that series of five, I kind of feel about the same way I feel about the Indiana Jones films, which is that Raiders of the Lost Ark just stands above everything as this fully complete thing. And if there hadn't been any sequels, that would have been absolutely fine. Sequels are fine. They're good. I enjoy watching them, but they're just not in the same league. And for me, Planet of the Apes, those five films, it kind of feels like that. There's some interesting stuff happens to those other films. Um, and they're good in their own right, but they're not in the same league as, as the first one. The other one I remember is, is you'll have to remind me, is this part of the five where they end up back in modern day? Is it Escape. LA? Yeah. Escape, Escape from Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Is that with Roddy McDowell's in that one? Yeah. Is he in all, yeah. Roddy McDowell's in... Is he in all of them? In, no, well, he's in four out of the five, right, and okay. he was in the TV series. Yeah, yeah. As Galen. Galen in the TV series, yeah. Okay, I can't really remember the others. Was Conquest, Battle... Well, there was the original... The funny thing about the sequels was that nobody really wanted to make them except the studio. And they'd been... Obviously, the first one was a real success and the studio wanted to make another one. Charlton Heston didn't want to be involved. Uh, in fact, he was only involved on the understanding that they killed his character in the first five minutes. Yeah. And then ultimately with the, the script rewrites happening constantly, he ended up having to kind of make two appearances. Um, and he wrote in his diary something about having to spend a week on that damn apes movie. <laughs> and he gave his, he gave his money away to, uh, I don't know, the NRA or something, <laughs> some worthy charity. Yeah. That, that one, the second one beneath the planet of the apes is not very good. I mean, it's kind of funny. I think that there's some really dark humor in it. Um, you know, the apocalyptic, the church of the bomb 
but um, it's not very good. But it's such a dour film because the first sort of 20 minutes to half an hour are, is basically they just repeat the first film. It's like new astronaut arrives, you know, stumbles across an ape city, <gasps> a city of apes, and goes through that whole kind of escaping thing again. And then, of course, it ends with just the most depressing lines. It's like a small planet, once blue and full of life, has died. I can't remember exactly what the words are now, but it's like, oh, my God. And you just kind of thinking, why did I just watch that? Yeah, you think the the end of the first one is like grim. You think, wow, that's a that's a harsh ending. <laughs> and then they thought, right, how can we make the end of the second one harsher than that? How can we make it even grimmer? So yeah, let's blow up the world. And they wanted to blow up the world so that there could never be another sequel. And yeah, then of it's course, like, write your way out of that one. And then the studio comes along and goes, I think the, the official line in some memo is, "Ape sequel is go." And then think, oh, God, how are the writers going to come up with, you know, bringing them back? So, of course, what they do is they come up with this ridiculous premise that two chimpanzee scientists and their friend, who's also a chimpanzee scientist, somehow, not only do they locate Charlton Heston's spaceship from the lake that it sank in, which is in the Forbidden Zone, presumably radioactive, they manage to get it to dry land, fix it, understand how to fly the damn thing and then fly it back through the same time warpy spacey timey wimey stuff that that heston flew through all to arrive back in 1973 for escape from the planet of the apes which where it all goes a, a little bit austin powers doesn't it i mean it's all like yeah groovy mm. baby it's it's all uh i don't know there, there is a scene with uh with zira the female chimpanzee in a bathtub covered in bubbles and Roddy McDowell's chimp Cornelius, he's, he's wearing like a, I don't know, a fluffy purple dressing gown or something. It's, it's all terribly Austin Powers. I mean, you think about it, in the first one, there's, there isn't really any time travel, um, apart from the fact that it's in the future. So it's just, well, that could be explained by relativistic effects. You know, you, you travel really fast. It takes a long time. You end up back at Earth. You will have aged hardly at all, but the planet's gone thousands of years. There doesn't actually need to be anything time travel about it. But by introducing this idea that, oh, they go back in time, um, then it does, it does make it interesting in the same way that the time stuff in Terminator is interesting because it introduces that paradox because it becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course, now that you've got the intelligent apes going back into the past, that's becomes the key for how apes end up taking over the world, right? And it's the classic time travel paradox. Like suppose, you you appeared to yourself one day and said, "Look, here's this. Here's the greatest novel ever written. Uh, you write it in the future. Here it is from the future. R- copy this out word for word." So you copy it out word for word, and it goes on to become the bestseller ever. And then later you invent a time machine. You go back and give it to yourself. So who actually wrote the book? Right? Where did the book come from? It's it's the classic paradox. And in the same way in Terminator, you know the 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 machine intelligence invents itself. And in Planet of the Apes, it's the intelligence apes give birth to themselves it's it's kind of the classic time travel paradox but i don't think that's as interesting as what the new films are doing i wonder if it's there was a reason why you know obviously the there's the whole new york ending to the original one but i wonder why the new films are set in san francisco rather than new york well some of the some of the other films in the original five were set in places oh, yeah. like like I'm trying to think California. Was, yeah. Conquest 
generally filmed in San Francisco? Conquest was actually filmed in Century City, which I think is somewhere between, somebody's going to tell me, somewhere between San Francisco and, and uh, LA. Right. But it was a, a new development, new city, and they filmed it before it opened up to anybody else. But Con- Conquest is an interesting one because they introduced this other fabulously implausible plot device, which is the reasons why there's a whole load of apes around is because at some point in the 1980s, there's a plague on pets and everybody's gerbils and hamsters and cats and dogs all die. So humans then think, well, what can we replace them with? We're so, we're so lonely. You can just imagine, you know, your auntie Ethel sitting there thinking, well, my budgie's gone. What, what am I going to replace it with? I think, I know, I think I'll have a chimpanzee. So they replaced people's pets with chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans, of all things. And then they realized that they could be trained. They could be trained to make tea and sweep the floor and all that kind of stuff. Because, of course, that's what you're going to do if you're running out of cats and dogs. You're going to, like, you know, have flipping 400-pound primates walking around your house. And, of course, it's one giant big metaphor, one giant big analogy for, you know, what's going on in the world at the time race relations, uh, human rights issues. I mean, that's the interesting thing I find about this, because you think about the, the premise of these films uh, are just ridiculous. I mean, just, just very silly, but they're, they're used, they use the, the premise as a cipher to look at, you know, really timely topical things. So with the first one, you have to think about the time that came out in the, the Scopes Monkey trial, right? Um, this, this idea of, of uh, the heresy of, of evolution, um, was was a pretty hot hot topic. It still is to a certain extent, right? And even though the, the this fundamental premise of you know in, intelligent apes and, and humans is, is kind of silly, they use it pretty well. And with, with conquest, they really used it well. Even though the premise is yeah utterly silly, and this idea of you know all the pets dying, so suddenly we're going to domesticate the apes. It's it really doesn't hold up, and and it's not a good plot device. But it is a good cipher a good way of exploring these issues and that one in particular you know now we're into the 70s now we're into things have to be grim like you know you're not going to get a happy ending things have to be gritty and uh that that's probably my second favorite film of of the original five certainly i would agree with you and i think a lot of other people would agree with you i'm going to put a link to the scopes trial in uh, mm. in the show notes because I, I hadn't heard about that We'll come on to, uh, we'll come on to Conquest a bit more in a second. Uh, the last one, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, was just abysmal. Apart from the fact yeah. that somehow they persuaded John Houston <laughs> yeah. to play the lawgiver. Yeah. Uh, he must have, he must have needed to pay the mortgage or something. <laughs> That's like, uh, it's like Marlon Brando in, in Superman, right? It's like, for five minutes, we'll pay you more money than you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> just say these lines. <laughs> That's probably why Marky Mark is in Transformers. <laughs> yeah. Quite possibly. Battle's almost at kind of TV series territory. And I don't want to talk about the TV series today because that was again. But it is interesting. Boring. Again, talking about like the execution because the new film, Dawn, is certainly closest to battle in terms of plot and in terms of what happens. It's, it, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is very similar to Battle of the Planet of the Apes, but boy, what a difference in well, how in, it's executed. In, in, yes, in terms of the fact that you've got kind of human ape conflict. I yeah. mean, I think a lot of people said that Rise was uh, closest to conquest. Yeah, I, th- I would agree with that. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I mean, okay. The, but the only thing, as far as I'm concerned, is that you know there's an ape revolt, um, and in none of the films so far, uh, none of the new films so far, do we really kind of get in, into the kind of um, you know ape subjugation, ape slavery thing. We haven't seen that in the new films. We haven't seen it in the same way that we did in the original five. Oh, I don't think they're going to go down that route. That's that's the feeling I've got. They're, they're going a different. They're coming at it a different way. No, I think they might be going at it from a more kind of I don't know pragmatic view in that it's really about i don't know experimentation and laboratories and you know general mistreatment than it is necessarily about a race of slaves mm. i've got a question go on should rise be called dawn be dawn and dawn be rise i do get them mixed up i have to say because to me it makes sense the other way around because you've got dawn which is you know the beginnings and then the one we we all just watch. To me, is more rise of the planet, the apes. But, but are you not? Are you not trained to think of dawn? Must be the second one because with the living dead, dawn comes second. <laughs> oh, God. Got night of the living dead, dawn of the dead, and then and you, you know that it has to be day next, right? <laughs> oh, day of God. the planet of the apes. <laughs> I mean, okay, so th- this kind of leads on to something I was going to talk about a little bit later on, but. What are they going to call the next one? Uh, so we've got Rise, we've got we've Dawn. Got Dawn. Now, of course, it doesn't have to be of the Planet of the Apes. If we stick in with how they did the original five, it can be, you know, from... Day Out with the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> now, it's kind of a gentler one in the old goers. Now, comedy, it's a comedy. With, uh, yeah. Carry it's on, carry on, people. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, yeah, carry on, be good. Carry on on the planet of the apes. Is it not going to be battle of the planet of the apes? Because aren't, aren't the army coming? Well, you can't have battle because we've had battle already. They can't use escape, conquest, battle, or beneath. Rumpus. Rumpus. Rumpus, <laughs> Rumpus of the planet of the apes. That's excellent. Tussle. Tussle for the planet of the apes. <laughs> I don't know. Is there, is there no rumours on these movie sites? Is there... Is that not already planned? Okay. No, not that I've seen. What do you think it's going to be called? Um, I don't know, actually. I'm, I, I can't get over Rumpus now. That's just <laughs> stuck in my head. Shenanigans on the planet in fact, of the apes. Yeah. If we can just take a five-minute pause, I'd like to go to. Uh, I'd like to go on the internet and actually register that domain name. <laughs> you heard it here first, just, folks. Just to be sure. Rumpus on the planet of the apes. Ah, oh, dear. Let me squeeze in another sponsor. Because Big Board are back sponsoring the show. And Big Board is a brand new service that brings together the web-based tools that we use every day into one convenient and really nicely designed dashboard. So here's the problem that I think a lot of people face. We've got updates and conversations that are happening across a whole host of different services. So you might have project updates that are happening on Basecamp or Trello. Then there's activity on GitHub. You've got your diary in Google Calendar. There's lots of these things. Big Board integrates all of these services and more. And to get started with Big Board, you simply connect the services that you use. So for me, that starts with a bit of Basecamp. You just authorize the connection and that's it. I did the same thing with GitHub so I can keep track of updates. And I don't have to go to GitHub directly or get really fed up with their email notifications. And I didn't use too many services, so I was pretty much ready to go. Even better, you can group different services together. So, for instance, you might have a client on 
Basecamp for project management, but you're hosting their Git repos on Beanstalk, whatever that is, and you're tracking your time for that project in Harvest. So you group them all together in Big Board, and then you can see an overview of that project's activity for the day, the week, or the month. And it's really nicely designed. There's a light and a dark mode, which I think looks the nicest. And of course, Big Board is responsive, so you can keep it open on an iPad or other tablet, and it looks really great. So since the last time I told you about Big Board, they've actually integrated Dribble, and now there are a few more service integrations along the way. And Big Board's only five of their US dollars per month, and you can start a free trial, no credit card required, by going to unfinished.bz slash bigboard. And remember to use the unfinished offer code at sign up, and you'll get an extended 30-day trial, and that's Big Board. So what were your first impressions of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? And let's, let's have your your five-minute reviews. Brendan, you go ahead, because I sense that you were a bit meh about it. Um, well, I really, I did enjoy it. I really, I did enjoy it a lot. I thought the sound design was incredible. Um, you know, really, really good. Made you jump. Um, yeah, CG, Andy Serkis, fantastic. I mean, just, just as an actor, um, I, I like him anyway. Um, and you know, as Jeremy said, you, you were, you were totally engrossed in it. It was, you were watching apes. Um, for me, I just felt, it kind of lost me about three quarters way through, where I was like, mm, "How long is this going to go on for?" I, I found Rise a much more interesting film. When I saw Rise, I didn't see that at the cinema; I just watched it at home. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was just great—a great take on Planet of the Apes, a great way to restart that whole franchise. Um, with this one, it was for me. It was so predictable. It was like. Screenwriters 101. It had all the usual, you know, oh, friend gonna go against him, the son's gonna go with a friend, then the son will come back, blah, 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 blah. You know, there was no, there was just no surprises for me. I thought, I thought the in, the beginning scene was fantastic. Yeah, I was, I was, I was sold. I thought this is brilliant. You know, it's up there with, you know, great opening scenes of, of kind of big movies like that. Um, you know, like I remember when I saw Gladiator, it was like oh, that first opening scene is, is fantastic. And I felt the same with this. Um, beautifully shot, brilliant. Um, but it, it kind of lost me a bit. Um, I don't want to say it was slow because I, I love if a movie, if nothing happens in a movie, uh, you know, and someone blinks, I'm, I'm done with that. You know, I think I'm great. You know, uh, Ryan Gosling, watching Ryan Gosling not blink for two hours. I'm sold. But Planet of the Apes was just, I felt it was a bit hard. Come on. I don't know. It's something about it. I came out going, it was good, but it didn't blow me away. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, let me cover what, what maybe I thought didn't work so well. Um, uh, female characters, there were hardly any, and the ones that were there were very underutilized, and that's a real shame because the original films actually did better on that count, and They've got Kerry Russell, who's a terrific actress, and she's she's pretty wasted uh, on this film, which is a real shame. But um, overall, I really liked the film. Um, I thought it was executed really well, and I totally take Brendan's point about maybe being predictable, but I feel it was predictable in a kind of inevitable way, in that Greek tragedy kind of way. You know things aren't going to end well, right? You know, you know things are heading towards um, a grim future. 
Um, so for me, it had more of this Shakespearean quality to it. Like wow. you, you don't want these things to happen, but uh, you just know, you know, this isn't going to end well. It's not going to be good. Uh, yeah, I thought it had this real sort of yeah Greek tragedy Shakespearean part to it. And it does suffer, and, and frankly, so did the first one, um, the Rise of the Planet of the Apes. With you know, the last act has to have you know a lot going on and and you know fights and, and explosions and all that. But um, I certainly never got bored um, by that. Um, but it, it it was thought provoking for me. It was thought provoking in that I mean, it was essentially about conflict without necessarily being okay. Let's set up some cameras and we'll have things you know hitting each other. You know, I don't mean it's about conflict in that sense. It, about the nature of conflict, um, what it means to, to go to war, what it means to, to have peace. I think, you know, this idea that peace is, oh, you know, holding hands, come by, ah, lovey dovey, where actually peace is this compromise where it's not ideal for either side, but they're going to agree to tolerate one another, um, despite the fact that they'd rather the other side weren't there, that they'd rather the other side didn't exist, that you still, you know, follow your principles you 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 tolerate that um and you know that inevitably there is going to be conflict but it's the way that that conflict is 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 treated that i thought was was very interesting on, on all sides that i i and i know some people have criticized some of the characters being maybe very two-dimensional um i didn't get that i thought everybody had motivations um even the people who are you know acting in the worst way had very good reasons to be acting in that way um, on the human and the ape side, I thought everyone had a good backstory to explain why they would act in that way, whether it's, you know, for peace or for war. The, you understood the motivations behind most characters, maybe not all of them, behind most characters. So I thought that, I thought that worked really well. And I thought, yeah, as on a, on a, basically a treatise on, on conflict, I thought it was really interesting. And fear as well, I think, is the overriding thing, you know, that fear makes people and, and apes. Uh, you know, act in, in these, you know, ways that they wouldn't normally act. So I, f I did feel that, uh, yeah, that, that whole idea of fear as a driver was, was really strong. And again, how using this, this conceit, which is fairly ridiculous of, you know, intelligent apes, blah, blah, blah. But again, using that as a cipher to explore these issues of, you know, the other, you know, we are literally two camps, right? We've got like, two camps of, 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 uh, well, people, I was going to say, but people and apes trying to, just trying to get by, but there's always the other. And how do you deal with the other? Do you go to war with them? Do you tolerate them? Do you cooperate? Um, you know, these, these are very topical things, I think. And I thought it was, I thought it handled that, uh, issue in a, in a, in an intelligent way. So what was your overall rating then? Maybe out of five. Give it a three. Three and a half. I'd give it a three for the 3D, and I'd probably give it a four for the 2D. I think I'd give it at least a four. Yeah. Four. I think if I'd only seen the 3D, I would have been disappointed. Hmm. The, the couple of things that you mentioned, the sound design I thought was just incredible. I mean, you know, you're in a, a scene, you know, surrounded by hundreds of apes, and you're hearing generally chimpanzee speech, chimpanzee noises coming from all around you. I tell you what, it's a good job that I didn't go and see it in real, because I wouldn't be able to tell what was on the screen and what wasn't. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> that's terrible. So I'm I, quite, I'm quite glad about that. Actually, you just mentioned there as well one thing that probably needs mentioning. I thought they handled 
the, the speech of the apes, it was okay because it could have gone really super cheesy. I was really worried about that because my one of my only complaints about Rise was when Caesar speaks at the end and he says, Caesar is home. And I always thought that he wouldn't have been able to use the word is in that sentence. It was too complicated a, a, a sentence structure for him. And he would probably just or could have just said Caesar home and it would have had the same effect. So I was quite worried that all of a sudden we would get into, you know, a, a whole load of, of apes just speaking at each other. And I thought that the the sign language um, was actually handled quite well. I have no idea whether the sign language was was right or wrong. I mean, did it actually make any sense? I mean, we were, uh, Kim Addison with Jessica, and, and she was wondering that as well because you know she's a linguist, and she's saying, "I wonder if that was actually ASL." Because um, that's the thing: if, you, if you're watching here in the UK and you 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 understand BSL, British Sign Language, then uh, it doesn't matter whether it's accurate. Uh, American Sign Language is still going to be incomprehensible to you. They're 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 completely different languages. Um, so I don't know. I haven't, I haven't read up on that to find out whether it was actual, um, ASL that, that they were signing. But I thought that was a really good compromise because it got you into the, the story without all of a sudden at the very beginning be confronted by talking apes. But then I don't know whether it was intentional, but there was obviously a lot more speaking as you got through the film. Maybe we were just kind of more comfortable with the whole mm. idea by that point. Um, I actually think that probably Cobra, spent he's he spent more time talking and said more articulate sentences than caesar which was i found that a bit odd there's this whole sort of speech uh of cobra where he says you know caesar loves humans more than apes and more than his own son and all this kind of stuff cobra was given the same treatment that mm. caesar's mother was in in the first film that's true so he he would be you know close to as advanced as caesar but I thought that that was handled incredibly well. I, I didn't mind the speech, and I'm glad that not all of the apes spoke, um, mm. apart from maybe the odd word. I think mm. Maurice, the orangutan, just said like one word. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, though, and I, I think this probably was a conscious decision, that the actual subtitles were in yellow, because I think if they had put them in white, people would have gone, it's bloody subtitled. I'm not watching subtitled movies. But because it was yellow... I don't know, you know, it was almost like, oh, they're not quite subtitles, are they? It's not like watching a French movie. (laughs) And I I, I don't know if they did that on purpose to go, yeah, they're just kind of, you know, so you can understand the apes. So it's it's not art house, don't worry. I thought one of the things they really got right was that the chimpanzees in particular were very aggressive and very violent, I mean, towards each other. Um, mm. as well as everybody else. I mean, that first fight between Caesar and Cobra in the dam was, you know, really violent. And, and apes, are, 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 they're scary. I mean, chimpanzees um, yeah, in particular. Yeah, bonobo, bonobo chimpanzees, yeah, they, they, they're extremely violent. I don't know, maybe from the, you think that, well, you know, the, if you go on the side of the apes, if you, you know, if you kind of uh, sympathise with them or something, you don't kind of expect them to be as violent as they were. But no, they are really, really bloody scary. Well, this is the interesting thing because apes in the wild are incredibly territorial when it comes to like, you've got one camp of chimpanzees. And if a, if a chimpanzee from a different camp wandered in, they would, they would just kill it. And straight away, just, you know, a stranger walks in, kill it, kill the stranger. Uh, and yet in the film, it's set up as it's apes and humans, like, oh, all apes together get along just fine. Uh, and all the humans, I guess, are getting on pretty well as well. Um, whereas in fact, the, the, the biggest issue would probably be, you know, ape civil war. 
we I remember Sue and I we went one day to Chester Zoo and they've got a really well established chimpanzee community there and I think that there's a whole load of kind of um adolescent males kind of coming up through the group and we sat and watched two males you know bloody knocking seven bells out of each other to the point where you know one was bleeding and there they are they're incredibly scary i mean an adult chimpanzee or an adolescent male chimpanzee these are big powerful animals well there was a there was a documentary on a few months ago where they showed and i didn't know this until i watched it uh these chimps um strategically hunting other chimps in the wild and they you know and they all had different roles one was one was a scout. One was would herd, herd the, uh, the you know the the other, the other chimps, and it was amazing to watch. And it was very much like that opening scene, you know. So it's it's obviously all based on chimp behaviour and stuff. Well, I've always wondered why in the original series we had, you know, obviously orangutan academics and chimpanzee what scientists. And the militaristic, violent ones, including in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, you've got General Ursus, the famous gorilla. You know, the, the, the military were gorillas. And I never quite understood that. I couldn't quite figure out why that was. Um, whereas in the new series, it's pretty much the chimpanzees that are taking center stage. Mm. I mean, the, the scene where, well, there's a couple that sort of spring to mind. There's a scene where they discover that one of the humans that they've taken in has a gun. And Caesar points the gun, you know, at the group of humans. I mean, that's really scary. And then there's a bit where Malcolm, uh, Jason Clark comes back into the ape village and a whole load of gorillas are kind of guarding the gates and they bring him to Caesar and they're knocking him down to the ground. Mm-hmm. And that sort of five minutes is incredibly scary. You know, at no point do you feel that you, you know, you're dealing with a bunch of care bears. Yeah. The scene that, that that really struck me is when Koba goes to the armory and and is mm. discovered in the armory, and uh, and he totally plays on the fact that you know I'll I'll play up the uh, the silly chimpanzee routine, and it's it's so believable and it's so well executed and it's so frightening then when he yeah. when he breaks out of that I and mean, it's just a terrific performance I thought. I wish that they hadn't put that in the trailers. Because oh, was it, it was, in the trailers? It was, oh. and it was one of the, one of the best moments in the film. I think, in general, we need more gorillas. We need more ape diversity in the next one as well as anything else. It just needs more gorillas. There wasn't there wasn't a, a lead gorilla character in this. There was Buck in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. He's the the big captive silverback gorilla. And when Caesar speaks and says no in the in the first film, that the look on mm. on Buck's face is just incredible. There wasn't a there wasn't a lead gorilla character. Maybe that's what we're going to start seeing in the in the next film is more, yeah, maybe more of the strife internally within the apes. Although that was a fairly large part of this one, I suppose. Actually, you know, the thing I I liked about this and this was here we have a community trying to begin a new society, right? Uh, the apes, and they have their design principles. I've talked about design principles a lot before, and I don't just mean in terms of software, but like any any endeavor that you know, group of people or apes are trying to do you have principles behind it so you know for the uh if you're founding the united states of america you've got the declaration of independence and you've got your principles you know written down that you know we believe all men created equal blah blah blah, blah. and here we've got the the old one that they they use in the original films which is ape it's not kill ape right um 
And then it seemed to me that the film was sort of pushing on that principle, which I'm, I'm really fascinated by. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by this idea of that kind of your principles are all well and good, but they don't really count for anything unless they're tested, unless they're really pushed. I mean, just in terms of web stuff, I had this recently, I was on a podcast with uh, Jen Simmons and, and Doug Shepherds. We're talking about DRM and we're talking about Mozilla and how they backtracked on their principle that, you know, they wouldn't have DRM, but then they realized in order to, you know, be commercially viable, they had to play along. And, um, and I made the point, yeah, what's the point of having a principle if you're just going to drop it, um, when, when it's tested, right? When, when the going gets tough. So in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, here's this principle that Caesar believes in and is trying to impart to his, his people. Ape to not kill ape. And so we said this was going to be a spoilerific podcast. At the end, when it's the battle between Koba and Caesar, and he has that opportunity to not kill an ape or to kill an ape. And it, it's, I can't decide whether this was very intelligent and smart or whether it was totally Hollywood, um, and kind of silly that what, what Caesar says this is a way of getting around his principle is that you're not an ape. Mm. You're not an ape. No, but that totally ties into, look at, you know, the history of conflict amongst humans, that the classic thing you do is you dehumanize the other side. They're not humans, they're subhuman. That's how you go to war against another people, is to not think of them as people. And so, although this principle existed, ape shall not kill ape, Caesar violated that principle at the end of the film, but sort of made himself feel better about it by saying, yeah, you don't, you don't count, you don't count as an ape, effectively dehumanizing Koba. Now, I'm fascinated by it. Was, was that, it's meant to be a feel-good moment. It was like, yeah, you go, Caesar. You show him what's for. Or was it the way I felt? Like, oh, no, that is so tragic. He had this opportunity to stick to his principle, to not kill Koba. You know, people who are against the death penalty, but then say, oh, but I've totally sent this person to the chair because what they did was really, really bad. It's like, well, then, no, you, you're not really against the death penalty, right? You, you, your principle doesn't hold up when it's when it's tested. Um I think that's the important thing with, with principles like that. If you, you know, if you're going to stick to belief, it has to be a belief you stick to when it's uncomfortable to stick to it. It's like people saying, Oh, well, you know, I'm not going to uh, do business with China and protest against uh, human rights treatments in Tibet. Well, that doesn't really mean anything if your total business with China to date is zero and your total projected future business is zero, right? It's kind of a hollow, meaningless sort of thing. A real test of principle would be something that would actually cost you. Will be something you stick. You 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 have to stick to it, despite the fact that it's not what you want to do. And I felt like at the end of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Caesar had was on that cusp, and and and, and it, it it does fall into the the classic mold of the Planet of the Apes films. This tragic unfolding, you know, it's not going to end well. But when he does decide, no, ape shall kill ape, uh, with the excuse that you're not really an ape, um, it kind of sets things up for. You know, things are going to get worse. Things are mm. going to get bad. He also tries to justify it because uh, before he says that line, he looks over to the orangutan and Cobra uh, beat him up or whatever it was. Um, and he, it's also, you know, that whole thing of like say, you know, oh, well, you, you've killed someone because he killed Ash and stuff. So therefore that, you know, I can de- dehumanize you yeah. because you've already done it. That, that's a, that's a classic yeah. Hollywood thing, right? He would just use yeah, like, yeah. the hero, the man of principle, and he doesn't want to do this, but oh, circumstances have driven him to do it. And so he's forced to do this thing. And yeah, it's, 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 it's ah, I find it 
yeah, tragic. It's interesting. I mean, at the end, um, Caesar admits, obviously, that the apes have started the war. I mean, in general, the apes have started the war, although obviously mm. if, if he'd have anything to do with it, there wouldn't have been a war. But there's that kind of, like say, a sense of inevitability. And also that the humans won't forgive them for, you know, for, for what they've done. Um, and I thought it was really interesting, actually. There was, the, there was a, a period um, before the final battle, but after the, after the first battle where Cobra attacks the humans, where people are being rounded up, they're being put into cages. Um, and I thought that they could have actually played on that a lawful lot more. I think we could have done with, you know, maybe another five or ten minutes of, of humans being mistreated. I mean, I'm not saying it was, you know, a Schindler's List moment, but there was an opportunity to cast Cobra and not just him, but the, but the apes that were following him as well. Mm. You know, it wasn't just him on his own mistreating humans. It was, you know, the vast majority of other apes you know, that were following for what, for whatever their reasons were. And that we could have done, they could have done more with that. Yeah. I did feel that those bits, I think Brendan is probably about the time when you were starting to feel like you were losing interest. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is because we didn't actually care that much about those people. We were mm -hmm. introduced to a, a small handful of people, you know, that we cared about. Um, but the, the, the teeming masses in San Francisco were, were pretty faceless and we didn't have that much invested in them. So even when they're being rounded up and, and, you know, everything's at stake actually we didn't care that much we didn't care as much as we cared about what's going to happen to caesar what's going to happen to you know the characters we're invested in i mean maybe if we'd have seen our nuclear family being mistreated in some way or chained up or locked in a bus um locked in a bus alongside the alongside you know, caesar's uh group of trusted friends mm -hmm. i don't know maybe we would have cared more about the humans at that point I, I want to know who drove the tank when Cobra was firing it. Ah, no, Sue asked that exact same question. Yeah. And I think that maybe the tank driver just died and he's like slumped on the wheel and just. Well, kept... no, yeah, yeah, he goes inside and beats him up, doesn't he? But yeah. maybe, maybe he slumped on the stick, on the power, on the accelerator. That's what I was assuming that it was basically yeah. <laughs> autopilot. Yeah. <laughs> But you had this, this, that, I think that was the strongest part of the film. In fact, it was funny because I tried, I didn't watch anything other than just the official trailers. I, I stayed away from any of the, you know, the YouTube clips and the behind the scenes stuff. And I even bought the art of the Planet of the Apes book, which has got lots of kind of the, the concept art in it. I and think I that's going to be the, the title of the next film, isn't it? Art of the Planet of the Apes. I've forgotten how I even got to that now. The tank. Um... Oh yes, no, I stayed away from the, from a lot of the stuff because I didn't want any spoilers. So I was actually, I watched the official trailer and there's, there's some stuff that goes into the trailer. For example, they show clips of the ape battle with the humans, Cobra's attack on the humans. And I honestly thought that that was going to come at the end. And it was mm. actually quite a surprise that it came halfway through. See, I didn't actually know any of that was coming. I had not seen, uh, I'd seen the teaser trailer, which was very understated. And watching the movie, everything that's in the teaser trailer is in like the first 10, 15 minutes, which is great. Cause I'm like, Oh, I actually have no idea uh, what's going to happen in this film. I did think when on the, on the, the attack scene, when it was like slow motion, Koba wielding two machine guns through explosions, it was a little bit Michael Bay at that point. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit like ape expendables, yeah. right? <laughs> the ape expendables. So I know that there was some stuff that Matt Reeves 
took out of the film that's actually in the trailers, which is quite strange to watch. There's a, a particular line from uh, Jason Clark Malcolm, who says, I've come to speak to Caesar. Oh, and yeah. That's nowhere that. in the film at all. Hmm. And there's another scene where another, a line, a line from Caesar where he says, uh, this is my home. You know, where do I go? This is my home. And that's not in the film. And it turns out that there was actually, um, a whole final battle scene that they, that they shot and that they didn't put in the film. In fact, some of it was going to go into one of those sort of mid credit sequences. Oh yeah. yeah. And there's actually a shot. If you go back and watch the trailers, there's actually a shot of, uh, a human warship going under the Golden Gate Bridge. And they were going to put that into the, the, like I say, into the, the kind of mid credits sequence. Uh, and then they took that out at the last minute as well. Literally like a couple of weeks ago, they just decided not to put it in because they wanted to finish where they finished it and not really, um, I don't know, take too much from either the next one or they wanted to leave it up to your imagination as to what the, the what the human war is really going to be about. Yeah. Cause it frees them up for the sequel. They can go and whatever direction they like. I'm interested to know what the time scale of the next film will be. Um, I was kind of surprised actually that this film, that the first two films have, you know, featured the same character, Caesar. I really liked that none of the human characters from the first film are in the second. Because after this pandemic, it's actually pretty realistic to think that, well, they're probably all dead. Um, and that the only continuity is really with, with Caesar and with the ape characters. But I think when you're telling it, you're trying to tell a story that's going to cover, you know, if it is really is supposed to bring us up to Charlton Heston crash landing on, on the planet of the apes, that's a lot of time to get through. And I wonder if the next film is going to jump ahead by more than 10 years. It was 10 years for this one, right? Between yeah, 10 first years. and second. Um, which would obviously mean that Caesar wouldn't be the main character if we're talking about, you know, a few generations from now. Um, or whether they're going to keep it in still roughly the same time period. I'm, I'm interested to see how they, how they run with that. I'm just looking up on the internet to find out what year the 1968 movie was supposed to be set in. I think it's 2,000 years from now. Uh, yeah, it's, the year is 3,978 AD. It's interesting, yeah, because if they're trying to bridge the gap between, you know, the events of Rise... Um, oh, speaking of endings, I was reading the other day in this book that I bought, this Art of the Planet of the Apes book, that they actually changed the ending to Rise at the last minute as well. And apparently in the original script, the guy who, um, and I forget who plays him, it's an English actor or an Irish actor, that plays the uh, the fellow that runs a chimpanzee prison in the first film. That's uh, Brian Cox. Brian Cox. Um, he apparently... Uh, chases down the apes into the, in this alternate ending, chases them up to Muir Woods, um, seeking revenge for the son that was killed and has a gun, goes to shoot Caesar and Will gets in the way, takes a bullet for him and dies. And mm. that's the original ending. Um, and they shot it and it's still out there somewhere. I don't know whether it's come out on any DVD releases because I don't buy DVDs, but it, you know, it might be out there somewhere. And they changed it at the last minute because they wanted a sort of more ambiguous uh, ending and they wanted to focus on Caesar right at the end again, which of course they did mm. in the second film as well. So mm. that's quite interesting in both films where they've actually taken it right the way back to that one character 
um, in both the first two films. They can't possibly have Caesar in the next film. Yeah, that's why I'm interested to see whether they will try and keep it in Caesar's, you know, lifetime or whether they're going to jump ahead and assume that everything just gets, gets filled in. Um, yeah, it'd be intriguing to see. Yeah. The other questions, which of course are, I just can't stop thinking about them because it's the kind of thing that I do. When are apes going to start wearing clothes? That was the thing with the, um, you know, the original was that it sort of, you know, made it more, um, you know, they really have taken over. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, once they get on a little natty polar neck, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, the, and, and maybe the next, maybe the next film is centered around a giant Primark because it could be like, you know, primate, primate mark. No, sorry. That yep. really is. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a poor Primarchology. Yeah, I don't know. Primarchology. <laughs> maybe that, that's where it's all leading. It's going to be, it's just a giant Primark promo. There's lots of stuff that we need to deal with. For example, uh, the whole Statue of Liberty in the desert thing, uh, the nuclear war, obviously, that causes the Statue of Liberty in the desert thing, um, and hence the Forbidden Zone. All of that's got to come, hasn't it? It is if they if they really are going to attempt to tie it directly. I, I mean, have they said that it's it is the same universe, or is it like you know a rethinking, a reimagining, um, like Tim Burton's one, right, where it's Oh, well, okay. Now that you've brought it up, mm. we need, we should really talk about Tim Burton's 2001 Planet of the Apes. Because is it a guilty pleasure? I don't hate it. I mean, there's things to hate about it. Um, and Tim Burton is not good at telling stories. And so the plot doesn't work that well at all, but it's pretty good at the world building, you know, costumes and the look of the thing and all of that, but it does not hold up as a film. But I don't hate it. I watch it once or twice a year. I do quite like it. I, I usually skip the first sort of, what is it, half an hour where mm. they're on the space station sort of sending chimps out in, in you know, little shuttles. I quite like that. I, quite, I thought that was a clever sort of way of tying things together. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, now that I know it, though, I don't need to watch it mm. every single time. You know, I get to the bit where he crash lands and then it starts to be fun. And, you know, I, st- I still smile at the take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty human part of it. Yeah. But, but see, that's one of the things I don't like is that, um, it's, it's a bit too knowing and wink, wink, nod, nod. And, and, you know, it's just having a laugh and say what you like about all of the other Planet of the Ape films. They, well, except for maybe Escape, they, they take their premise seriously. They say, okay, given this ridiculous premise, Let's just, let's use it to look at these issues like race. Let's use it to look at these issues like conflict, right? I mean, especially the new ones, they're taking it completely seriously, even though it's kind of a, a silly thing. And cause Tim Burton's one is just doesn't take it seriously. It's, it's a bit, yeah, this is a bit of a laugh, a bit fun. Um, yeah, it just doesn't work. Well, there was, and I forget the character's name now, but there, there was the orangutan slave dealer. Um, and you know, it was no 12 years a slave, but it did deal with, you know, with human slavery issues. But the slave dealer himself was kind of this comic relief because it was the Paul Giametti character. That's right? it. It's Paul Giametti. Yeah. 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 No, and there's, there's good things in it. But Tim Roth is great in that film. Tim Roth's great. He's totally chewing the scenery and loving it. I think it should be the law that Tim Burton has to make, you know, the remake because he makes generally a bad one. And then uh, later on, the really good ones are made. So he, he did the same with Batman, you know. And then we had uh, oh, that's true, Chris- yeah. Christopher Nolan got hold of it and 
It was incredible. So, and I think that's what's happening here. He kind of like let him let him make a shit one, and then now, right now, we've set it up and we have to do it again. Maybe they they need to do a Spider Man, isn't it? You have to give him the Nightmare Before Christmas, though. You have to give him that. No, but they're just Tim Burton movies, aren't they? You know, they're they're just Tim Burton. You know, is um, and when he's allowed to do his own stuff, you know, from his you know Oyster Boy book or whatever, it's kind of fun. Yeah, no, I actually, I'm, I'm a big fan of Tim Burton. I, um, Ed Wood is terrific. That's a great film, fantastic film. But Tim Burton doing Planet of the Apes, um, yeah, it was, it was the approach to it. It's like, okay, say what you like about the Steve, uh, the the Peter Jackson King Kong. It was mm. still made, you know, with the right approach. I think like it was, it was coming from the right place. Its heart was in the right place, even if it didn't succeed. Whereas I thought the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, it was, it was, its approach was wrong. It was coming at it from the, the wrong way. It's like it didn't get what Planet of the Apes was about. Yeah. What, what was the one that Tim Burton did recently that, um, I'm trying to look on his IMDb. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln who no, was producer on that. I thought he did a film. I was surprised it was him. You know, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. No, that that was not Tim Burton. <laughs> that was another instant classic. He was, yeah, he was a producer apparently. Which, uh, of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Yeah, according to IMDb. Oh my god, how did I even know that? So, we're talking about how films end, what did you think of the ending of the uh, Tim Burton one? I really like the ending of the Tim Burton one. I think that it was a, a clever twist and I didn't mind it at all. And I know people get really kind of religious battles over it, but no, I didn't mind it. What's your interpretation of it? I think that he's gone through a parallel universe. Uh-huh. So he, go, he gets back to Earth, but now it's a parallel well, Earth. Well, it's a parallel Earth. It has to be a parallel Earth. I can't think of any other way. It's not, it's not a timey-wimey, spacey-wacey well, thing. Well, it could be in the sense, what if he goes really far forward into the future again? Suppose he went 2,000 years in the future, Planet of the Apes, gets back in his spaceship at the end, and he just ends up going another 2,000 years in the future, and that's why it's Planet of the Apes again, but it's more advanced and they've built a statue of Tim Roth. Yeah, but it's it's Washington, D.C., rather than the strange planet. So there's not the Earth connection, I don't think. So he's he's gone back to Earth. Well, it's all, it, it was Earth all along. Not in the Burton film. I don't think it was Earth all along at all. It was they were out in space somewhere and they went through some spatial distortion and I don't think that's Earth. So more more like the original book then, the Pierre Brunel where it's like Beetlejuice. Possibly. I mean, it's it's interesting that in the original novel, the Pierre Ball novel, mm. and in there was an animated T V series called I think it was Return to the Planet of the Apes. Um so they can't use that one either. Where they're actually, the apes are pretty technologically advanced. I mean, they drive cars and there's like jets and, and stuff. You know, they've got, uh, they've got mobile phones and, uh, all the, all mod cons. So they, they could totally build Washington DC and, and, uh, build a statue of Tim Roth. It made no sense for me that he would, I thought that he would go back to Earth, but it had to be a parallel universe Earth because he wasn't on Earth when he was with the apes. That's my interpretation of it. Unless it's one of those things where the audience is in on the idea that, oh, it is actually Earth. And we all know it because we've seen the original film, but nobody in the movie actually realizes it until the end when he goes forward in time even more. And they're like, oh, this is... Uh, yeah, I think that one's a stretch. That is a stretch. What are your predictions then for the next film? 
I mean, what are they going to do in terms of plot devices somewhere along the line? I think that has, to, I don't think that they're going to be showing the war. I think the war is done now. Um, I mean, how many times can you see kind of ape human conflict? I don't think that they're going to show that. I think that the next one has to be past that conflict somehow. And that, and presumably a nuclear conflict. I wonder whether we start to see, you know, um, if it is going to maintain the timeline of being in Caesar's lifetime, whether it's more about Caesar setting up the conditions for the future society, basically becoming the lawgiver, you know, writing things down and saying, these are our rules. Um, and it's something, you know, something so horrible would happen, um, between the apes and humans that they, that he starts saying these things like, do not trust the human and all that stuff that they find in the cave in the first film. Right. Um, that maybe it's, it's, yeah, it's getting grimmer and grimmer and setting up the ground rules for uh, a planet of the apes where humans are subjugated. I can actually see a film that doesn't have humans in it at all. Hmm. Might be a bit boring. Don't you need, I think you need that, the juxtaposition of the, of that relationship, I think, to make it work. Um, Otherwise, you're just kind of watching watching apes, you know. It just it's just it's just another society, isn't it? Which I guess could work, but I think it's it's always about the the uh, juxtaposition between those two entities. I can't wait. I can't wait. I don't know. I I, I can't wait for Rumpus. It's going to be big. <laughs> Rumpus Tussle is going to be great. Rumpus Tussle <laughs> <laughs> with the Planet of the Apes. He should make a sequel. He should make a sequel to Cloverfield because that was rumored that it was going to be a, you know, a shot from another POV, um, but I think it got canned. But um, I still think that's his best film. But. If I was clever, I would make a thing, a web thing, where people could just put in their suggestions. Um, that could be quite cool. There'd probably be a gener- a Planet of the Apes mm. title generator within. It'd be at the end of the day. Yeah, I'll give no, it. What time is it now? I'll give it. Yeah, yeah. I'll give it an hour and a half before that's <laughs> online somewhere. So I think that we've we've exhausted everything that we can really say about this. I just can't wait another for another two years. I mean, what else have we got this this coming up? We've got Godzilla, I suppose. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Will you be going and seeing Godzilla? I know that Jeremy. Godzilla, you don't think Godzilla's a dinosaur, do you? He's not a dinosaur. No, he's not a dinosaur. I'm, a, I'm with you on that. Yeah. How is he not a dinosaur? Not all reptiles are dinosaurs. They're a specific kind that went extinct millions of years ago. I see. Well, this is where I might disagree with you, strangely enough, because I can imagine that Godzilla being just a you know a modern day reptile that may be radioactively grown so that he's he's big. But that makes him what a great lizard. And what's where does the where does the word dinosaur come from? It comes from great lizard. Terrible lizard, but yeah. Ter- sorry, terrible lizard. Well, he's a pretty terrible lizard. If it's anything like the last bloody Godzilla film, it will be a really terrible lizard. Apparently it is not. I haven't seen a new Godzilla, but I've heard very good things. And I'm actually looking forward to seeing it. I don't actually get out to the cinema that much, but... um. I <laughs> and what do you call a one-eyed dinosaur? Do you think he saw us? What do you call a one-eyed dinosaur's dog? Go on. Do you think he saw us, Rex? <laughs> Oh my good God. Right. We should really wrap it up. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending an hour and a half of your time rattling on about films this afternoon. 
My pleasure. We should do this again. In fact, what I want to do is I want to resurrect the um, the regular movie spot at the end of Unfinished because uh, I think uh, I think I like talking about films. I, th- I think I think the three of us could do like classic seventies sci fi movies, right? We yeah. could, like we get assigned homework, like we're going to watch Soylent Green, yeah. something Silent like that. Running, Silent Running. There you go. Yeah, and then we yeah. talk about it. Okay, well, I mean, yeah. this is what happened with um, the guys, uh, Marco Arment and John Syracuse, because they do accidental tech podcasts and they started a, they, they stopped doing their regular podcasts, uh, you know, a year or more ago. And then they got together to talk about cars. And then within a couple of weeks, they were just talking about all the usual tech stuff again. So hence where the accidental tech podcast comes from. And we could do that. We could do something similar. We could, um, we could start a movie podcast. And before you know it, we'll be talking about the business of web design. No, no, that went long ago. So people can find you, Brendan, on your website. They can, uh, brendandoors.com. Or they can find you on Twitter at brendandoors. Jeremy? Adactio.com. I shall plug your website. Or Peter, you are actually on Twitter. In fact, you're on Twitter for about, you've got 10 different accounts now. Um, I'm on Twitter as Adactio, but I publish my notes to my own site and they get pushed to Twitter as copies. So Twitter is, is where I store copies of my of my status updates. I'm not going to subscribe to all your new Twitter bots though, because um, I just get RSS. RSS is the preferred way. And then people can follow me at Malarkey to ask questions or suggest topics. You can message this show on Twitter at unfinished BZ, or you can email me because people still do, but please not while I'm on holiday. He has at unfinished.bz. Thanks to our sponsors this week. They were big board and the Shropshire geek revolution conference you can support our show by supporting them and just a quick note i'm away on holiday now for the next three weeks so oh god i can't believe i've agreed to this i'm leaving the show with ashley baxter and laura cowbag to do whatever they want to do so lord knows what that's going to be (laughs) so i hope that you'll be as nice to them as you are to me oh shit